show is brought to you by the Human Resource Executive Magazine's HR Technology Conference and Exposition, held October 1st to 4th at the Venetian in Las Vegas. Join me and thousands of your colleagues at the world's largest exhibition of HR technology. Act now using the code HREX and you can receive a $300 discount on your ticket. Thanks. We'll see you there. And by the way, don't miss the Women in Technology segment. Good morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly. One step closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumser. Hi, Stacey. Hey, John. How are you doing this morning? Are you, uh, You're home this week, right? I'm home this week, but it's like 100 million degrees here. I, <laughs> it's, it's, it's inhospitable. I think I moved to Mars or something. Yeah, I think, wasn't there a map? I think you had posted on Twitter this, this interesting map that showed, like, the, the geographic location of the, the areas the hardest hit by the sort of heat increase or, or global warming changes. It, it was quite fascinating to see that, obviously, you're smack dab in one of those places. So I, I am sorry. It's going to get warmer, I have a feeling. <laughs> well, Not a good thing. What, what was really interesting about the map is it was, it was a map that showed where warming had gone towards two degrees centigrade difference. And and that's that's a dangerous threshold, two degrees centigrade difference. And the places where that happened were exactly a map of the political divide. It was it, it was stunning. It was yeah, just it really, stunning it really was. that warming is a myth in places where you haven't experienced it, and so and so you can't get political belief in the idea because the phenomena doesn't exist there yet. And I think the ultimate word is yet, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, North Carolina is one of the areas where I live that has not been hit. I mean, we definitely get our heat waves, but they've they've been the heat, same kind of heat waves we've had for quite some time. Ohio, Pennsylvania, those areas where we're in sort of the the less red zone there, all of those, and it was it was quite striking. Yeah, and again, the power of visualization in that, right? You know, I think someone would have shown you the data, and it would you you definitely wouldn't have seen that, right? It was all because of how it was how it was visualized, right? That's right. That's right. Visualization is the, is the, well, you know, when we have all of this data all around us all the time, the only way you can communicate it well is with pictures. And, and I don't mean pie charts. Yeah, um, no, not pie charts. <laughs> Although we still have to use a lot of pie charts. But yes, the, the multitude of, I guess, approaches to visualization, that is definitely going to be a big I think when we talk about next generation analytics and next generation sort of business intelligence tools, the visualization component of, of that will be a big conversation. I don't think it's there yet. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, most of the time I, I talk to organizations about the kind of visualizations that have an impact like that, they're still heavily hand developed at some level, right? I mean, you you, you, know, you might use the data to, to map it out, but you've had to really think a little bit about, you know, how you visualize that and sort of hand create it. The tools aren't yet doing that kind of visualization off the bat. So, 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 so I'm going to try to explain a, a thing that I'm starting to see in my research. And I've taken to calling it the intelligence flywheel. And so, so here's how it works. You start with your data, and there are all these great tools to look at your data, and you can visualize stuff in your data. And that does two things. It gives you insights, and it creates new questions. And the new questions require you to collect data in new ways using new tools. Right? So this is the second step of the flywheel. You have the data. 
You get the insights. The insights cause you to have questions. The questions mean you need different tools to look for different things. And that creates new kinds of data. And it creates, again, new kinds of questions. But you've got technology doing that now. And then the result of that is you develop new hypotheses about what's actually going on, right? And so this flywheel, which is which is the faster you can get it going, the deeper you can understand your organization, mm-hmm. um, is the heart of how a data science function or an analytics function inside of um, uh, an HR department will work in the future, right? It is and, this... And- well, I was going to say, and I think that the part that's not working as well right now is probably this visualization component because it's not automatic that that visualization happens. You really have to work at it, right? But to me, I, I love the flywheel example, but I think the visualization is broken still. Well, well, the visualization, the visualization will make the fly, visualization is one of those tools that makes the flywheel run better, right? And it's it's counter to 20th century thinking about questions, right? And in 20th century thinking about questions, questions have answers. In uh, intelligent tool situations, in people analytics situations, questions always generate more questions. Questions to get questions. Interesting. Well, it's it, it, it may very well be that that becomes the next the next uh, marketing quote for organizations. We don't give you better answers. We give you better questions. There you go, right? Uh, the next next tagline for someone, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, so, so what's going on with you? You're deep in the throes of the research now. You've you've got uh, all the are. data in, and you and and you're through the cleaning process mostly, I imagine. So, so yes. what's it what's it look like down down in that great big pile of data? Well, we are. Absolutely thrilled inside digging inside of this data this year because we have so much of it. It's also a little bit why it took extra time to do cleaning this year. So I ha- we haven't really sort of announced this yet, but for anybody who's listening, this year we ended up with about I think 15 to 20 percent. I've calculated the actual percent more, but almost two to three hundred more responses with solid data in them this year that we did not clean out. Normally we we clean you know we always clean extensively and we usually lose two to to almost three thousand people who hit the survey because it's either not valid or it's duplicates or it, you know, doesn't have something that we can uh, validate from a, from a, a response perspective because we validate all of our data. This year, we're at 1,895 individual organizations that we're analyzing. So that's up from 1,635 last year. So that's a huge jump for us. And that's really exciting because that gives us a real diverse group of organizations to sort of analyze and look at the data across. So, yeah, and, and um, our big launch, we're, we're already finding that we're going to be able to show a year-over-year analysis of the, the five major factors that have an impact on HR technology effectiveness and adoption. That's something that we've been looking at every year, but now because of the ability to do statistical analysis on it, and I'm working on how to do the visualization on it, so this is part of my conversation right now. We are going to be able to show what those are and actually what percentage we've seen year over year so we can, you, know, you can show that this is not a, a one, one-time phenomenon, right? So that's really exciting. We're also getting into, um, I think, an interesting mix of data this year between what small businesses and, and very large businesses are doing with their HR technology and at what point there's a break in sort of, when you have to start changing your thinking about HR technology. You and I have talked about this. There are different levels of maturity and different levels of 
cultural makeup, and then there's also just sheer size that causes you to have to think differently about HR technology. And we're trying to find those points um, in some of our research. So that should be interesting as well. That would be great. That would be great. Having facts in that area would be way useful. There certainly is a lot of a, a lot. A lot of the big name pundits do a whole boatload of um, smoke blowing and arm waving without having a factual underpinning. And so yeah. it'd be nice to bring That's, that to the game. That is what we're trying to do. That is definitely what we're trying. And how about you? You're you should be in the middle of your writing, I would assume, of the amazing amount of demos and briefings you did over the last two months, right? You know, it's worth it's worth saying out loud, I did 120 investigations of companies who make AI claims, and it took about 450 hours to have all of the telephone conversations and interviews. So, so, so what I'm trying to do right now is just sort that into something that, that's consumable. Right. There's 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 a lot to see. One of the one of the, the primary themes is that that flywheel that I talked about at the beginning, that's the best way that I have of explaining it's not really maturity, but as people get into this business, they dig deeper. Right. And and that flywheel is how they dig deeper. And so and so what's happening is not all of the companies that started doing the same thing end up doing the same thing. And and they develop really interesting, detailed, tiny little expertise. One of the one of the companies that began as a chatbot company now imagines itself as a conversations company because what they discovered is Every kind of conversation is different. And so what they're doing is building a taxonomy of conversations and then prioritizing that taxonomy of conversations based how applicable decision tree technology is to it. So it's, it's, an, it's an interesting phenomenon that, that's complicated to explain, and I'm, I'm figuring out how to simplify it. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 just, I'm just sitting here thinking about a taxonomy of conversations. Yeah, you know, we used to just, the idea of ta- a taxonomy of words, right, of skill definitions, the, the thought seemed so immense to try and just catalog that. I can remember doing that by hand back in the days when I was actually working in organizations on competency models. The idea of a taxonomy, of, the, the, the amount of complexity that goes into a conversation and then to come up with a taxonomy of it, you know, you just have to stop for a minute and think about how far we've come, even though sometimes it feels like we're still, you know, doing very baby steps on most of this. It is definitely at a different place we're talking about than we were 10 years ago. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing about this this technology adventure that we're on is is things are going really fast and what's happening is we're opening up entire new topics of conversation, entire new areas of study. And and you wouldn't know that. Like I, I spent some time on the phone the other day with Kieran Snyder, who is the founder and CEO at Textio. And their levels of sophistication about the impact that one's word have words have on one's audience is it's just staggering. And it's got sort of a first application of diversity and inclusion kinds of dynamics, how to get your job ad language so that you don't push away people you want to attract, right? And and it's hard to know the impact of your words without some sort of feedback. And so they offer that kind of feedback. But their bigger imagining of their business is that that same 
quantitative analysis can be applied to every kind of text-based interaction so that if I'm sending you a piece of email, my my textio might know you pretty well and make suggestions about about nuancing the language that I'm using so that I communicate with you more effectively. Yeah. Well, that you've sort of jumped right into uh, what is the, the first topic of conversation, the first article and news piece that we have today. It, it, it may be a slow week in the news with everybody being on vacation still and school's just getting started up, but there's still, I think, along these lines, some, some news coming out of the market. ADP announced their advertising services which is supposedly new ground in recruitment process outsourcing. And I think it gets to exactly what you were just talking about. This is sort of quantified analysis that's particularly of job postings and job outreach efforts. But it's the same thing. You're analyzing whether or not someone takes action based on the words, right? Yeah, so programmatic advertising is, you know, this this is where the the line blurs in this new wave of technology. It's not really artificial intelligence, but it really is complex statistical analysis. And that line is much harder to draw than it sounds. The difference between something that is intelligent and something that is a statistical analysis it may just be a theoretical line there may be no difference between those two things and and so and but this is really smart because it helps you only spend your advertising dollar for recruitment ads on ads that work in context that work there's a huge number of job boards and so so the way this works is you write your ad, you tag it for what you want the ad to be filled by, you give it to the programmatic advertising tool, and it places those ads in the places that it thinks will work. It monitors the response rate to those things on a moment-to-moment basis, and where the response rate is working, it keeps it. Where the response rate is failing, it stops it. When it stops it, it moves the ad to some other place to see if it can get more responses over there. And then when you have all of the applications that you need, it stops the ad, right? So this is a, this is a way of controlling the results of advertising and minimizing the responses that you get to an ad to the number that you need rather than having it out there for all of time so that you get buried in in responses forever. It's really quite smart. Indeed bought one of these a couple of weeks ago. They are the current acquisition rage for big companies on the edges of the job market. And and we've been talking about sort of this mix of marketing slash recruiting slash technology, right? You know, recruiting processes, we should say, and technology. I'd say all summer almost, right? Like you said, this is definitely the the trend to be picking this up, adding this to to the picture. But it's not just a recruiting conversation, is it? I mean, I mean, this is the type of technology you could be using in all kinds of communications if you do it right, wouldn't you say? Well, you you know what's happened when I was growing up. Like in the dark ages, there was one phone system and three networks. <laughs> and, so, and so so, if you made a communication, and there was the mail, if you made a communication, it sort of, you could reliably predict that it got to the person and that they heard it or listened to it or saw it. With technology, 
the success rate of communications has fallen. So, so it's normal for people to predict that a, 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 an effective piece of email sent to a lot of people is one that gets opened 4 or 5%. And the traditional response to that is, okay, so we got four or five percent the first time. Let's send some more, and, you know. And eventually, you get enough people to look at it because you bombard the whole thing with lots and lots of email, right? And that's why your email box is full. That's exactly why exactly. your email box is full. Um, <laughs> and it is why Outlook and all the other tools have now created a focused and unfocused group of emails. And how often do we look at the unfocused, which makes it even more likely that you're not going to look at it, right? That's right. That's right. Now, if you're an HR department and you're trying to reach out to the entire employee base, this is a problem, right? Because because it turns out that people have HR in their unfocused category. And sometimes HR has really important things to tell people. <laughs> and so, so the question of how do you improve the effectiveness of outbound conversations from the HR department to the organization is a big deal. And it's got a bunch of these same principles involved. But in this case, it's it's not ads on job boards. It's 15 different communications channels that people use and figuring out which one works for which person in which way, whether or not they say it's the way. Right. So, you, so you, you look at what they tell you and then you look at what they do and you focus on what they do. And there are I think I think you told me that GuideSpark is is working on solving this problem. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, this is, you know, the, the the area we're calling sort of communication slash sort of engagement platforms falls into this. But I, I you know, it, it really is communication tools. And GuideSpark is definitely building out a tool to not only sort of manage the communications, but do exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is figure out which of those communications actually create action, right? Right. And you know, and then, but you're also seeing organizations like Virgin Pulse and Limeade. They're adding to this picture as well because they're, although a lot of their tools start off in the wellness space, their focus has been communicating and getting action from those communications. Again, similarly, what are my analytics around people taking action with the with the insight? So yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of tools that are tailored towards communications for the HR market because HR has a little bit different. It, you know, it, it has to sort of act a little bit like a public marketing uh, entity because it can't always force people to sort of do things, but in some cases it can, right? Some things are required by a company. And so you've got to walk a fine balance there. And and what is most important is just getting the action taken, right? Um, Right. The other side of this is when does it, me and you have talked earlier about when does this slip over from communications to manipulation, right? Yeah, boy, that's a that's that's a hard one because every communication between an employer and an employee has a power imbalance in it, and so the likelihood that manipulation is a funny a funny area. You may feel manipulated, even though I didn't intend to manipulate you. Yeah. Right, and this is the this is the paradox of communication in general, where where I've always believed that the meaning of my communication is the result that I get. But many people believe that the meaning of their communication is what they said. Yeah. And those two different views, right? If you're an employer and you think the meaning of your communication is what you said, and you don't understand that, that somebody receiving communication from their employer has financial security at risk in that communication, then you probably miss how manipulative it is. 
Well, I, I mean, it, you know, one of the, the topics we had on the list today to talk a little bit about is what's going on in my home state here in Lowe's. Lowe's is a great example of an organization that has been grown rapidly, are going through a process right now of basically reorganizing their approach to retail and reorganizing their approach to sort of the, the, the type of roles in their organization, particularly those in in-store environments as well as corporate. And they've, they've been in the news a lot this week because not only are they laying off a lot of workers, which is a, is a pretty big thing, particularly in this area, they have about 300,000 employees and it looks like they're going to be laying off somewhere in the range of maybe 10 to 15% of their employee base. But they're also, when you think about sort of what's being communicated right now, there's a big communication effort. There's some, a lot of news articles, I should say, about how they're laying off their employees whether or not they're giving them severance packages, and it doesn't sound like they're giving them large ones, they're giving them a smaller set, some people aren't getting any, and then whether or not they're actually using funding instead of sort of to put it back into the organization, from an employee perspective, they're actually buying back stock. And so that conversation we just had about communication, what happens when that communication gets flipped on its head a little bit and becomes branding and external news about your company and what it's doing, and yet HR is still in the middle trying to manage a situation like this, right? It's, it gets complicated fairly quickly, particularly when you have stuff like stock buybacks, which tend to enrich the CEO and shortchange the investor and the employee. Yeah, the, that was one of the things I thought that was really interesting about this news story is that it actually walked through the, the regulations that took place that were changed in 1982, the U.S. Securities and Exchange ruling, that basically showed that financially it made more sense and that there was a lot of upside to many of the CEOs, boards, those kind of things, and the stock market for these buyback efforts, which we're seeing across the board in almost all public organizations. This is not Lowe's in and of itself. This is happening. SAP was mentioned in this. Uh, Google, all, all public organizations have been going through this process. Caterpillar, Dow Chemicals, all of them are doing it. But I think particularly this hit home because of the HR decisions that Lowe's was making at the same time as all of this news came out, right? They were making decisions about reorganizing, reorganizing their roles. They were making decisions about who got severance packages. They're making decisions about what level of pay they're providing, which is not at the sort of $15 an hour rate that we're seeing happen across the market as a whole, along with those decisions. And that's a communication conversation, right? Why are, is this happening inside our company? Is what the employee thinks or is what the brand looks like as important? Is that social responsibility issue important, right? As it is the financial numbers that, that we're working on, right? Right. This is where you see what the actual values of a company are. You see it in their behavior, and it's, it transcends HR. Right? HR is just a piece of the overall behavior of a company. Interesting times that we're living in. So what's the last piece in the pile? Well, I think probably the most interesting thing, if we get a chance to talk about it, is what's going on with Google right now. So Google is starting to get into some hot water, particularly in Europe, not surprising. They're getting some antitrust complaints against their Google's job search. Now, we talked about this probably a year ago to the point, right, when Google first started saying they were going to be do, doing job search. We were saying they're scraping those jobs and that information from companies who are making money off of this, right? You had a fascinating fact about the difference between how Google was previously and what, what Google's doing today and, and just clicks, correct? So in the beginning, Google was a referral service. You went to Google, you searched, it gave you a list of results, you clicked on the results, and you went to see the, the material. And so for every search, there was a click. The 
the search to click ratio was a hundred percent in the beginning, and that was Google's business was was being a referral service. Today, fifty percent of the searches in Google do not result in a click because Google answers the question. And Google answers the question by summarizing data that it got from the companies that that created the data, right? And so, you know, for all intents and purposes, I, I don't think this is a legal opinion, but for all intents and purposes, Google is stealing content from the people who can't afford to not be found in Google. And it monetizes that content so that when it takes my stuff and gives an answer based on my stuff, that's a click I don't get. And it's a click I don't get for information because Google doesn't create information. Google, Google is, a, is a strip miner of information. And so, so they take the information from me, they give it to the client, and I don't get anything out of that process. And that's monopolistic behavior. And so in Europe, where monopolies are less mm, desirable than they might be in the United States, there's starting to be a boatload of pressure about this, particularly in the job board area, because because what Google does is it scavenges the data on job boards and then presents it so that you click on Google, right? And, yeah. and so they've, they've gone into competition with content with their customers, and that never really ends well. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the term strip mining, you call it data strip mining, is, is a really apt term here because when you think about strip mining, anybody who's ever lived in coal country and any place else where strip mining has been done understands that when the strip mining is done, there's nothing left, right? So right. There's no further things you can and, – and these companies, if they don't get enough revenue or enough numbers, they'll leave, then who will create or provide the data, right? So this becomes a very, you know – cannibalistic model, I guess I would think. Again, if it, you can't get the data in any other way. You know, and this is not just an HR conversation. You know, we were having this conversation, I was just thinking the other day about flights. You know, I, I, we travel an immense amount. You introduced me to Google Flights. and didn't even know it was around until a year or so ago. And now I get all most of my flight data from Google instead of going to where I might have gone previously, which was Expedia or Travelocity or Kayak or something like that, right? To just yep. get flight times and stuff. Those are... Those are real challenges for the market, right? They're real challenges for the market. So I'm going to leave you. My definition of evil is not everybody else's definition of evil. My definition of evil is a group of people with good intentions. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, John, we are going to wrap up the conversation today. Yeah, <laughs> there you wrap go. Things up. Good. Okay, so another great show. Thanks so much for doing this, Stacey, and we'll be back here next week. You've been listening to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumter. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Bye-bye now. Thanks, everyone. Bye.